Our Old Testament reading today comes from Isaiah 49. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. On the day of salvation, I have helped you. I have kept you and given you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, show yourselves. They shall feed along the ways. On all the bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them down. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will turn all my mountains into a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Lo, these shall come from far away, and lo, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Satim. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his suffering ones. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your lifespan? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Therefore, do not worry, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? What will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. 
So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Uh, pray together. Father in heaven, we pray that as we uh, think on these perhaps well-known words of Jesus regarding money and possessions, that you would stir our hearts to hear what you're, hear, what you're saying to the church and what you're saying to us as individuals and as a collective community as we think about the way we steward that which you've given us and the way we live in a world that is profoundly vulnerable a world filled with loss that we're so aware of now a year into this pandemic. Would you meet us in these spaces of vulnerability, Father, Son, and Spirit, and help us to know how we might be comforted by your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Uh, amen. So today we have that uh, joy of talking about Jesus' teaching around money um, and possessions, and it's exciting, right? I know that you came to church thrilled to be talking about money today. Well, that is the topic that's in front of us as Jesus sort of keeps going through the Sermon on the Mount. One commentator said that it is just so much easier to explain away everything that Jesus says about money than it is to in any serious way consider some meaningful application of it to our ordinary lives today. We'd just rather avoid it. And when I think about the topic of money in my own life or in the life of the different individuals in the church that I've pastored throughout the years or grown up around throughout the years, it seems to me that money is really one of the most sacred spaces for most Americans in the West. We, uh, it, it is that privatized space that we probably talk the least about with one another, and that we avoid any direct confrontation with God about even. Like, it's just that thing that we like to keep at bay and keep very, very private. I think even more than our conversations about sexuality. Uh, money is that sacred space in American culture, at least, uh, where we find ourselves struggling with the Lord and what he teaches. And it's a space that some of you, as you think about your own financial lives or the way you've stewarded your financial lives up to this point, you may feel a little bit of pride because you've managed things rather well and you have enough. And some of us, you know, might think just the opposite. You think, well, I didn't, I didn't get that DNA in the context in which I grew up, and I've not stewarded things very well. I don't feel like I'm a great manager. I haven't chosen the right vocation to sort of maximize my, uh, my input, if you will. If you want to read an interesting article, David Brooks had a curious and I think ironic column a couple of weeks ago where he just simply asked, if you want to get rich, here's the vocations you ought to choose. And it's a play with that problem in American life that leaves us profoundly at a loss in terms of our community and goodness. Money's an area that we feel profound shame around, uh, whether we have it or whether we don't. We can feel shame, and so we avoid bringing it out into the open to talk about now, last week, we saw in the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught the disciples to pray and taught the people there on the hillside to pray, that um, 
Jesus talks very frankly about the bread that we have and the bread that we don't have. And one of the things that we said was that that teaching about prayer, that we need to remember that we're not praying this individualistically, right? That I'm not thinking simply about my bread, the bread that I have or the bread that I don't have, but our collective bread, the needs of the world, in fact, the needs of my neighbors. And that one commentator said, you haven't actually uh, experienced the full answer of that prayer until everyone has enough bread. It's a beautiful thought to think about. In this part of the sermon, Jesus begins to wade into our conflict around money that actually creates need in the world. It creates inequalities in the world. It sustains the lack of bread in the world for many. Jesus wades into the way we overvalue money and so let it master us as a solution for life, as a way of finding our identity, as a way of sort of, um, you know, mitigating risk in this vulnerable world, right? Or the way in which we just simply worry and fret about money in light of the vulnerabilities of life in this broken world. It is a vulnerable world, and we are threatened in many profoundly real and weighty ways. So as we think about this, jump into the middle of Jesus' teaching, looking at verses 22 to 24 first. This is where I think Jesus begins to get at the heart of our struggle, of our problem. He says there, he speaks of this metaphor of the eye being the lamp of the body, and if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is unhealthy, or we could say full of darkness, right, of the, of the greed and the selfishness and the envy that is so characteristic of the broken world, then what? There's profound darkness in our lives. And the whole point of Jesus' metaphor and his analogy here is that we would begin to ask ourselves very real questions about who is my master? What masters me? What guides me in life? He wants us to think about our masters. Is it God or, in this case, is it money? Is my eye healthy or is it dark? What determines the way I invest the resources I have, the way I spend the resources I have, the way I plan for whatever resources I might want to have? Is it, in our case, the American dream or is it the promise of the kingdom of God? Is it the reality, the values of consumer and capitalist culture or is it the self-giving love that was characteristic of Jesus our Savior? How do I even know if money is or is not my master, my leader, my guide? So I recently read Richard Foster's book. He's that individual that's written quite a bit on spiritual disciplines. And I read his book just recently, The Challenge of the Disciplined Life, in which he explores the three great idolatrous struggles of most human beings throughout history, money, sex, and power. Now, why did I read that book? Because my spiritual director said, hey, Tuck, I think you should read that book. And here's why. Because in my conversations with him over the last months, as we've been sorting out the changes in, in the Bartholomew household and in our lives and in the church context, one of the things that he heard coming up over and over again, month after month after we'd talk, was all of my own conflicted relationship with money and finances. And it would just surface, surface ever so lightly. And finally, he said, hey, I, I think something has a grip on your heart and your mind and your body that is not the kingdom of God. <laughs> that was a really bold thing for him to say because I pay him to do spiritual, you know, directing for me. 
And he said, I think you should read this book. I think you should explore your historic relationship growing up with money in the context of your childhood and thinking about it, how it's shaped the way you think about having and not having and getting and not getting, and how you think about the way you make choices. And so I picked up the book and I started to read it. And it's a painful book to begin to read because you begin to realize that the conflict is even more real than your little spiritual directing moment might reveal that it's real. Foster says this, he says, we are serving money when we allow it to determine our economic decisions. Now hit pause. Who doesn't do that? Who doesn't do that? He says, we are serving money when we allow it to determine our economic decisions. If money determines what we do and what we don't do, then money is our boss and not God. He goes on, he says, my money might say to me, because I'm looking at my budget or I'm looking at my income stream, I'm looking at the input column, my money might say to me, you have enough money to buy that. But my God might say to me, I don't want you to have that. Who do you obey, your money or God? Most of us don't imagine money actually talking to us like that, right? Um, we, but we do get his point. We understand exactly what he's driving at because we look at our bank accounts, our savings, our investments, our income streams to determine and set limits around our spending, the house we purchase, the vacations we take, the jobs that we take and hold, the money is the, money is the deciding factor almost always in all of these ordinary human decisions, whether you're rich or whether you're poor. Money is the boss so often in our lives. And good financial stewardship takes money out of the driver's seat. Think about that, because most of the time when you've met with a budget counselor, you've met you know, with, with someone to discuss financial needs or your financial situation, or you've, you know, you've, you're trying to make decisions, almost always the question that we start with is, what can I afford, rather than, God, what do you want for me? And how does what you want for me fit into what you're doing with me and through me in the context of your kingdom? We let stewardship become a function of the well-managed budget, of not overspending, of saving just enough to reduce future vulnerability. But Jesus here invites us to live with money that operates within the frame of the prayer that he taught us to pray last week. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is simply talking about living with our relative wealth or our relative poverty with wholeheartedness for God and his coming kingdom. He invites us to see what is actually treasure in our hearts, in our lives, so that he sees money as a barometer, a spiritual barometer that shows us where our heart truly is. Boy, that's hard truth. It's no wonder we avoid the teaching of Jesus and try to sort of background it amidst other things that we become concerned about theologically. Notice how Jesus reframes our earthly investments. He gives us a warning and he gives us a promise. The warning is just simply, don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth. And that's something we all do. It's the, and why does he say this, right? It's because it's the greatest risk. Moth, rust, and thieves 
destroy and steal what you have. Now here, Stacy and I are in the midst of this tremendous life change. We've lived in Philadelphia for 15 years. We started a church in our home in West Philadelphia. We've grown that church. We've merged into these this merged church congregation now, and we're sort of giving up so much that we've loved in our lives. And one of the things we realize pretty quickly when we invite the realtor to come in and walk through our home and give us a valuation of it is, guess what? The moss and rough, rust stuff, that's real. It's not imagined. It's not pretend. Jesus isn't making this stuff up. The vulnerabilities of our earthly treasures become so aware, aware to us, or we become aware of them in context when we start to actually realize where we are. The promise that Jesus urges here is that we should lay up treasure in heaven where there is no risk, which is remarkable, right, for those of you that are into the investment world. This is the only enduring investment, Jesus says. It always beats the market, if you want to use that metaphor. It's the risk or the, it's, the, it's the investment that will stand the test of time and endure forever in the coming of God's kingdom. And more than that, when you and I practice living this way, investing toward the kingdom of God, it pulls our hearts and our affections into the very thing that Jesus is bringing, the kingdom of God. For our hearts are there, are located there. So what does this mean in the context of everyday life, right? I mean, it sounds very nice and sort of poetic as Jesus is preaching in that particular moment. What does it mean in the context of our everyday life? And I found it helpful to frame this by the Lord's Prayer itself, to pull this teaching of Jesus into the conversation that he invites us to have with God. So we open our hearts and our hands to the very presence of our Heavenly Father who cares for us. And in that opening to our Father, we become aware of those things that are on His heart and sometimes how they differ from the things that are on our hearts. And we invite Him to be in the driver's seat of making decisions about our spending and our investing. We open up to His will, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We hallow His name, which is that sort of practice of unloosing our grip around what we have and what we want and what we desire and asking that maybe what we have we might leverage toward the kingdom of God in some very meaningful way. Last week, last week I listened to a talk that Mark Green, who uh, is head of the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, or at least he was when he did this talk, um, and this is an institute started by John Stott, and they focus on questions of faith and work. In other words, they're thinking about how is it that Christians live 90% of their lives, right, when we're between Sundays, right? How do we live our lives in these spaces in a way that's reflective of the kingdom? And in the context of his particular talk, he chose to talk about the book of Ruth. And he focuses on that segment of the book of Ruth when Boaz instructs you know, we learn about Boaz's financial practices in his field, right? He followed the gleaning laws of Israel, which were laws that were designed to keep the poor ever in your mind. So that your sense of profit-making, whether that's you as an individual or you as a collective, a company, a corporation, that, you know, you would always be mindful of those that have not. And you would create a space and a way for them to be honored with dignity in their own work, in your own fields, really, 
as they picked up the scraps, essentially. But one of the things that Mark Green pointed out in his lecture is that Boaz goes even further than the letter of the law would require because he begins to instruct his workers, right, his paid workers, to actually be generous themselves and to consider what they left behind for the poor, in this case, for Ruth. A follower of Jesus in our work and in our investments, we are called to hold in mind God's desire for the common good of the coming of his kingdom. And that means thinking about the poor and those that have not, those that have less than we have, and it means beginning to leverage our lives, the, the, the riches, the wealth that we have, the relative wealth that we have, whatever it is, that we would live with it in such a way that we are caring about more than self-profit, more than our household profit. If you're a business owner, more than your business profit and more than the profit to your investors, right? But you would begin to understand the profit of the coming of God's kingdom where everyone has enough, that's investing in heaven. Laying up treasure in heaven is then more than tithing to a church. It is a life formed in the way of Jesus. It's a life discipled by the very presence of Jesus that begins to act on all of the things that Jesus speaks of regarding God's promised future, the coming of the kingdom. And that often feels to us quite risky. Remember that the crowds that are listening to Jesus are not likely the most wealthy in their society. They're more likely the poor, the relatively poor people that have been attracted to Jesus and they're curious about Jesus. And here is Jesus teaching them about money, laying up treasure in heaven, not the earth. How would you hear the teaching of Jesus if you lived with relative poverty? then or now? How would you feel about the things that he's saying? How would it strike you to hear these words of Jesus? He simply says, don't worry about poverty. Don't worry about what you'll eat and what you'll drink and your clothing. Life is more than food and clothing. And you think, well, I, I know that it's more than all of these things, but we have need of all of these things, right? Those would be the things that would be going through my mind, right? In my sort of real everyday space, I'm thinking, but Jesus, we're vulnerable. I'm thinking, Jesus, there could be a pandemic next year. I'm thinking, you know, you just begin to think of all of the ways that you've previously experienced vulnerability. And not only that, the way you've experienced human selfishness operating and proliferating itself in the way we live life together. You know, human beings have a profoundly high tolerance for inequality. It's a striking thing about the history of the human race. Jesus invites us to think very differently and he invited those individuals on the hillside to think very differently, to begin to act on the values of God's future and not the values that they saw operating in the world at the moment. In fact, at the very end of the text, he says, that's the kind of thing the Gentiles do, which is just a way of gesturing to the fact that they don't have access to God as you have access to God. They don't know him as their heavenly father, at least not yet. Jesus seeks here 
to reframe our sense of God's nearness to our lives and his care for our lives. Within this beautiful picture of the natural world, of flowers, of the field, and the birds of the air, and the most cynical among us will begin to think, but they're just flowers and birds, Jesus. They're not people who live selfishly. Jesus knows that. But he calls us to remember the way God cares for the least so that we might understand that we are of greater value to God. We are God's greater investment in the world, if you want to put it that way, because we bear his image and his likeness in the world. Jesus is here to deliver us from all of the abuses and the inequalities that human beings have brought into our world and who seem bent on sustaining in our world. He seeks to liberate us from that evil, to move us to a very new place, a very new way of being human that bears his likeness. And he calls us to be a part of a community that lives very differently with what it has. He here calls to mind King Solomon. And if you've read anything about King Solomon, you know that the gesture is to his lavishness, that he was perceived to be an extremely wealthy king of Israel. In fact, if you wanted to take money, sex, and power, there's a sense in which he had it all, and more than enough. But Jesus says, there is no comparison between he had in all of its extremity with the simplicity and the beauty, the majestic greatness of lilies of the field, who just are. And when you begin to think about it that way, I think what I want for my life is I think, Lord, what would it look like for me to just feel the freedom to be? I don't have to find my identity in what I have. I don't have to find my identity in what other people think of me. I don't have to find and strive for an identity, right, through all of the different ways and mechanisms that you and I sort of engage in our work our possessions, the opinion of others, the freedom to just be. What would it feel like to you this morning if you felt freedom like the lilies of the field? Because that's what Jesus is inviting us into. He's inviting us into the freedom of being like God, which is what you just are. Jesus has come to restore and renew the likeness, the imprint of God on our lives. And Jesus says, wouldn't it be wonderful to just live that? That's the freedom he invites us into, to rest in the gift of belonging, to be those individuals that cry out to God, our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today daily bread. These last months of the decision-making in the Bartholomew household have been just excruciating. And you, you, you know, those of you that know us close up, you know how painful it's been to arrive at the decisions that we've arrived at. Leaving a church that we have deeply, deeply loved and then taking on this new work with Anglicans, right? It's churned up so many complicated things about my and our relationship with money. 
We're leaving work in a community that we've loved deeply, that we felt and experienced great love from you in, even as we've sort of gone through this strange 12 months of a pandemic and change, you know, and and merging two congregations and the trauma that's happened in the Bartholomew household, all of these many things that have been so difficult, we felt so loved. Boy, and the churning up has just taken on new, you know, realms as the realtor passes through our house. And we think about selling a home that's been such a core part of our life together as God's people. And then we begin to fret over the home we might buy in Charlottesville or wherever we end up, right? Or we begin to wonder, you know, what kind of home fits that next chapter of our lives? The churning up, the worry, the stress, the fretting, it just goes on and on and on. And there'll be a new iteration this week, I'm sure of it. But here's the thing, and Jesus points this out here in the text. Worry changes nothing. It never mitigates our vulnerable exposure to the brokenness of this world and this life. And here Jesus invites people like me and people like you and all of us to remember that he has shown up in the world, that he is near us, right, as one who loves us. He, the one, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, thou who is rich became poor for our sakes, that in him we might become rich. Jesus never leaves us, he never forsakes us, and yet it is entirely possible that human selfishness common to our broken world will actually overwhelm any one of our lives. And Jesus is aware of that because even in the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks of our coming suffering and he speaks of being persecuted when we adopt and embrace the values of God's kingdom, that life isn't going to be easy on this side of the fullness of God's kingdom. Jesus understands that living generously with the bread that we have may actually lead to poverty. It did for Jesus. We may find ourselves alone at the end of the day and without clothing even, it did for Jesus. But Jesus also assures us that we are a part of what God is up to in the redemption of all things because of the faithfulness of Jesus. God invites us to be a part of the kingdom that he's bringing, to invest in the reality of that kingdom by acting on its values and its its treasure now in the context of our earthly lives. And Jesus reminds us that God will ultimately deliver the kingdom to us, the kingdom that our hearts belong to. And if it is heaven, it is a treasure that is untouchable by moth and rust and thieves. God raised Jesus from the dead, and he will likewise raise us up. And that is the motivation, and that is the courage that he offers us to live differently, and it is the comfort that he offers us in the experience of loss in this vulnerable world as we seek to live in the way of Jesus. May God give us grace, friends, to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and to our hearts this morning. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.